0: Hello everyone and welcome to Easy Medicine, a podcast designed to authentically engage medical and pre-medical students on their journey to becoming a physician. As an aspiring physician, I seek to provide insight gathered from my own experiences as a student, tutor, and coach, as well as others in the field to make this incredibly complex adventure a unique, fulfilling experience. Together, let's make medicine easy. And now for the question of the day. A 10-year-old male presents to the emergency department with red urine. The patient's mother states they went to a family party party earlier in the week. Since then, she noticed her son becoming more lethargic. Patient states he was having abdominal pain and then noticed red urine. This has happened to him one time prior when he was an infant. Mother states during that time, he somehow got into her medications and took a dose of an antibiotic she was using for a UTI. The patient has two sisters. Neither of them had had an event like this prior. The patient appears to be in mild respiratory distress. Labs show a reduction in glutathione levels. What would you expect to see on a peripheral smear? A, target cells? B, bite cells? C, acanthocytes? D, burr cells? Or E, schistocytes? And the answer will be at the end of the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I am so sorry it's been a while now I was going through some crazy illness aka the flu not the vid this time thank the lord but my gosh I really felt like I was on death row on Monday and Tuesday of this week so we're back at it and feeling a little bit better now nose is still stuffy so if I sound kind of weird that's exactly why. But anyway, I wanna get into this. I was really inspired by this topic after I read the book, Hidden Potential, and I wanted to share this concept with you because it is extraordinarily relevant to what I do as a tutor, what I do as a coach, and what all of medical students are doing without even really knowing that they're doing it. Um, and it's just it's something that's so important for our future and how we can be really great students in general and make us successful on our exams, right? Because that's the goal, to get to becoming a physician, Yes, we want to be there, but the first things first, we have to pass our boards, we have to pass the in-class exams, and the best way to do that is to find things like this, and this is called the tutor Effect. So the podcast will be all about the tutor Effect today. I'm going to talk to you about a couple things like group studying, because I know everybody has different opinions on this. Some people are in love with group studying, and some people cannot stand it and we're going to talk about that, and then also about becoming the master of content to the point that you can teach it to other people. So you may be doing this already, but if you haven't, I'm going to talk to you about some really cool studies that were brought up in this Hidden Potential podcast, and I went and did a little search on my own, but I want to share them with you because I think it's it's pretty awesome, and you know, we're nerds as med students, and that's some cool stuff. So let's get into it. I'm going to start with a quote from Seneca, also a huge fan of Stoicism. And Seneca is one of the oldest philosophers out there that we still refer to. And his quote is While we teach, we learn. Simple as that. While we teach, we learn. And we may not realize it, but every time we step away and we teach something, We are actually helping ourselves learn. We're maybe relearning of subject, right? We may be like, I haven't looked at Key in quite some time now, but now the first year students are asking me about um, the oxygen saturation curve, and I'm pulling some information that I didn't even know existed, and you're teaching that to them. Well, that is part of the learning process, is you're actually teaching relearning the material because at some point you had mastered it. And so we're going to find a way that we can continue to master material by teaching. So where did this tutor effect even come from? Well, it was coined by um, a French language teacher. His name was Jean Paul Martin in the 1980s. Um, and it was actually first called the protege effect. So they are used interchangeably, but this is a psychological term that has been used for quite some time now in the 80s. I guess it's been about 40 years. So this tutor effect basically postulated that students in the role of a teacher have an enhanced learning experience because they are encouraged to teach the other students. So basically they are more involved in their learning process because they know they're going to have to teach it. So if we're going to teach something, we have to master it, right? We don't want to get in front of the classroom and have no idea what we're talking about. And so this is what the tutor effect talks about is when people are put in a situation where they have to teach they will go out of their way to know the material very well. So I want to look at that actually from a developmental standpoint, because this isn't just, you know, something that is actively engaged in the classroom. This is actually something that's been studied in development. Now, there was a study that came out in 2007. And it was called the Confluence Model, and it was about birth order. And now what they looked at basically were the intelligence levels between firstborns and then later born children and interestingly they found that the firstborns had a higher iq score than their later born siblings now before you get offended because i'm also a middle child so i'm like whoa are they coming at me am i are they saying i'm dumb i want you to take a step back and think about what is the study identifying here so if you think about this maybe you're the oldest sibling But if you're not, the older sibling, when they are first developing, they are learning on their own how to babble, how to crawl, how to talk, how to walk, how to climb stairs, how to eat food, how to use utensils, how to play with toys, right? All of these things, they're just kind of learning as they go, and they're learning from the parents. Now, let's say another sibling comes along and that newborn is now in the house, and then their sibling is two years old at this point, and now they're walking around, maybe they're playing with toys, they're talking to mom and dad a little bit, and the newborn is noticing these things. And by the time the newborn gets to the stage where they are doing some of those things, like babbling and crawling and walking and talking and climbing stairs, they are actually doing something that they watched from their younger sibling. Now, Interestingly, if you take that even further, imagine two siblings playing together. And if the younger sibling is trying to do something on a toy, but they can't figure out how it works, that older sibling can take that toy and say, press this button and it'll do what you want it to do. And then the younger sibling learns that. And then they do it again and they do it again and they do it again. And that reinforcement and the development of that behavior occurs. But what's cool is that that older sibling played the role of teaching that in order for them to know how to do that, they had to learn it on their own. And then they taught the younger siblings. And then if there's another younger sibling, that goes down the line. And each descendant of the next sibling, basically the oldest to the youngest, kind of was equal to the IQ levels. So it's really interesting. And they actually looked at this study and took it and said, well, what about an only child? And they still found that children from a firstborn uh, that that were first born in a family of multiple children had a higher i q than a child who was a who was an only child. so what that that I just think that speaks volumes to what is happening here it's this idea that this child is put in a setting of teaching, and without thinking about it, that can play a role on their i q and what they do later on in life. So I wanted to share that study with you because I thought that was really cool. But now, how does that really apply to us as teachers and as as somebody who wants to um, learn material better for exam taking and maybe apply it to what we do in medical school so i want to take two other studies that were mentioned in this book hidden potential and that i went back and read about the first one is is written by Reese et al. 2015 and the the study is called how does peer teaching compare to faculty teaching and they did a systematic and meta-analysis review basically they looked at a whole bunch of studies and they included 10 of them in their final study and what they found was there was no significant difference in the outcomes of students that were taught by their tutors versus by faculty. Now, you may say, well, there's no difference. That doesn't really mean anything, right? I mean, that's not really a good finding. But is it not a good finding? That basically means that tutors are just as effective at teaching their peers as the faculty who have been studying this material for whoever knows how long. So it's kind of interesting, right? Like, students who are learning that material maybe the same year if not the year later or maybe a year later than that are able to teach the material just as well as faculty members who have been learning this stuff for like 20 plus years it's really cool so this is this is something that I want you to consider and I want you to actually take it a l- little bit further and of course this is me speculating on experience but students may actually have more of an advantage learning from their peers because they're learning material that they have been tested on previously. So they know what is important in the 100 slide deck that they get for whatever class they're taking. They know this is something that you wanna consider and this is the path of physiology of this. And if you know this, then you'll know how to do this for next year. That is something that you may not get from a faculty member. So keep that in mind. All right, the next thing here is this study that was done in 2018 by uh, Lang, and it's meta-analysis on the effect of peer tutoring on tutors' achievement. So now we're looking at what does tutoring do for the tutor itself? And what they found was the more time spent tutoring, the more the student learned, and they, they quantitatively assessed this. And this meta-analysis, just to say, was, a, was uh, included 16 studies this time. So they found that the more the student taught, the more they learn. So in reading, the more reading they taught, the more they were proficient in reading. The more math they taught, the more proficient they became in math. And these skills developed over time that as they became teachers, they were getting better in their skill sets. So why is this important to us? Why are both of these studies something to consider? Well, let's see how we can apply this to med school. Because if you can't teach something, maybe you can't test on it super well. And the reason I make that argument is because whenever we learn material, they're going to present it in a specific way, right? They give you a slide deck that was maybe written 10 years ago, and they say, this is the information you need to know. When you go to the exam, have you ever seen word for word what was written on your slides or written on whatever information you read, the textbook, in the exam? Definitely not, there's no way. Uh, maybe there were some gimme's on your in-person classes, but I can tell you for the boards, that will never happen. You're never going to see something that you're like, I've seen these exact words before. So the question is then, do we do a good job at interpreting what we're learning so that we can test on it? Now let's let's dive into that a little bit here. So applying this to med school, I want you to think about this. When you watch an in-class lecture and you don't understand it, Or maybe you're one of those people who's like, I don't watch lecture at all. I just watch like boards and beyond or something uh, first. And then I go from there. I want you to think about what do you do first? If you didn't understand it, right, you watch the whole lecture and you're like, okay, I have no clue what that was about. I mean, that happens to so many of us. And and that's probably my favorite comment from students. I have literally no idea what we just talked about for the last hour. Yeah, that's awesome. So what do you do first? How do you engage with that material in a way that's going to help you better learn? Um, maybe it's from something that we talked about in, in previous podcasts about figuring out your learning style and doing things that suit that. Maybe watching YouTube videos, watching Ninja Nerd, drawing out the things um, that you're learning. Maybe it's reading first aid because you're very visual and you need to see all the stuff in a, in a spot. Maybe you ask a group of friends. Maybe you ask the professor directly. Maybe you don't do anything and you just say, yeah, whatever happens, happens. But regardless, Usually most students are going to do something to better understand the information. So I want you to consider that, like, what is it that you do first? The next thing I want you to think about is what makes people not want to participate in a group studying session? And I find this to be very interesting because I am a proponent of group studying if it's a good group studying session. I think some group studyings are a little bit too social and who doesn't like to socialize in the world of, um, you know, medical school (laughs) and where all you do is socialize with your textbooks and your laptops. It is definitely something that I want to talk about here. And I can tell you right now that the reason most people don't do group studying is probably one of these statements. Somebody in the group knows way more. There's somebody in the group who will take the lead and just talk about everything. The group is way too fast paced. They can't keep up. They don't want to look dumb. They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to mislead anybody or point them in the wrong direction. And then they also are worried like, well, if everybody else is wrong here, then it's just a waste of time and I'm wasting my time studying. These are all valid concerns. And these are all concerns that I've heard before. And I couldn't agree more. You know, these are things that people are worried about. But what if we can make group studying a very like active process where it's not something that is just a spontaneous, hey, guys, let's do this. And it's more of like a planned effort. So let's let's think about these last two problems here, because that's what they are. These are problems. And the way I like to work with my students is whenever we have a problem together, we have to find the solution. All right. Every problem leads us in a direction to help us find solutions. When we find more problems, we find more solutions. And we're gonna start today with these two big problems. So the first problem, like we mentioned here, is that if we don't know it the first time around, what do we do? Well, that solution comes with your next step, right? That comes from you mastering the skill. How do you master the content? Maybe you master it by doing the first pass, second pass, third pass method, which is one that I teach. You can do the first pass watching the lecture. Second pass is watching a supplemental video or reading the first aid or doing something else. Third pass is doing practice questions. Regardless of what it is, you master the material. Now, I want you to think about this, though. When you're mastering the material, what is your mindset of why you're mastering the material? And I can guarantee you it's because, well, that's a dumb question, Ezra, because I want to do well on the exam. Well, of course you want to do well on the exam. But are you doing it just to get it done? Are you doing it to know it? Or is this just something that you're like, I need to get past this now so that I can better learn it later for boards? Because I've heard all of these. So ask yourself, when you are trying to master that material, why are you doing it? Doing what you do to master it now is perfectly fine. But can you make it better? And I want you to think about this. What is the goal that you set when you are studying material? If you set the goal, you tweaked it just a bit and you said, my goal is to learn this so that I can teach my peers, I guarantee you the outcome will be very different. Because if you are going to teach your peers, you have to become the master of the material. The only way to become the master of the material is to pay attention to detail. Really fine tune detail. And why do we need detail? Because if somebody asked me, why is it this? Or why is it not that? Or what happens if this is disturbed? you want to know. So let's take, for example, the spinal cord tracts, one of the most difficult concepts in neurology I I find for the step one exam. People are very confused about the contralateral versus ipsilateral symptoms and what goes where and why do we do this and all these things. Now imagine that you are going to learn that material to specifically teach it to a class of 100 students. If you do not know the ins and outs of all of those pathways, what they do What happens when you lose sensation, or what happens when this track goes out, or you over exaggerate this track, right? Like all of these things could be questions that are asked, and you have to know how to answer that. So, with that mindset, you've changed the game. You've made yourself want to learn it so that it's teachable to others. When you make something teachable to others, you actually make it easier for yourself, right? You're gonna find a way to make you better understand the information. So that is easily compressed and placed onto others. That is one thing that people feel like is something they spend too much time on, right? If they spend all this time writing things out and trying to figure out that. But in reality, the longevity of the memory is so much more beneficial than just superficially remembering something. So fine-tune detail, right? Preparing yourself for questions that could be asked. What if you cut this tract out? What if the dorsal column goes? What if there's a lower motor neuron lesion versus an upper motor neuron? Why is the reflex arc this way? These are all things that could be asked. And then you can also find mnemonics to make things simpler for people, right? Like if you, if you have a hard time remembering which track goes where, maybe you create mnemonics to remember like dorsal uh, cords or dorsal column is associated with vibration and pressure. I'm not good with mnemonics at all, so I'll leave that up to you. But if it helps you create that for other people, that is the beauty of this. So be the student to learn, but become the master to teach. That is the goal of this problem. All right. And that's how we solve it. All right. Now, problem number two is about group studying. And I feel like most people do group studying all wrong. And it's because we come out of undergrad or we come out of another setting where we have big team meetings. You know, there's eight to 10 people in there, maybe even more. And everybody's just kind of talking, conversing. We're having a good time, you know, and and we had the time to do that back then. But now, Time is, time is everything in medical school. So if you're going to decide that I'm going to take an hour away from my individual learning to go study with a group, it better be a good decision. So I understand where people's uh, hesitations are when it comes to doing groups. So I want to talk about some concepts about how to make a really effective group. And what we're doing by by creating a group is we're applying the tutor effect. So now we have created the master, now we apply the tutor effect. So the first thing is you want to limit the group size of tutoring. Minimum of two, maximum of four you are perfectly capable of studying alone i'm not saying don't study alone i think the bulk of your studying should be done alone this is specifically for when you decide group studying is appropriate so minimum of two maximum of four why do i say max of four because you grow any bigger than that And it's just going to become a tea party. Everybody's going to be spilling the tea, talking about gossip and all that good stuff. And you're going to be distracted and lost and you're going to lose focus on the goal of the session. And then, yes, it will be a waste of time. So it is so important that the less people there, the more focused it will be. And of course, you want those people to be someone that you will learn and grow with. If you are on the same page with all of these people, it may be difficult to learn and grow. It's nice to have different levels of education in the room. So if that's possible, totally recommend doing that. If it's friends, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea, but make sure your friends know that this group studying session is not for having fun. It is to learn. It is to spend time together for an hour so that we can teach each other and master this content. Okay, the next thing is that there should never be one single teacher. They should never have a group sessions that are like, okay, you know, Bob is the teacher for us and we all just kind of listen whenever we meet. That is not the way. That is absolutely incorrect. Every student should have a subject to st- to teach. So, it should always be divided evenly. If you've gotten, you know, 15 lectures in a week and you got, you know, you got 3 people, 5 people per lecture, right? And you want to divide that evenly because that gives a chance for every single person in that room to master material. And once that person masters that material, they can then pass along that information to their peers to then have them master it as well. And the way this works is that because you've mastered it, because you found almost the cheat code to learning this information at a faster or more efficient pace, you pass that on to your friend and they can do the same for you. So this is so crucial. Make sure that there is not one singular teacher. Every student should be the teacher. And then the third thing is that there should always be an agenda. Group setting should not be random. It should not be like, hey, we meet every Friday for two hours and we just do whatever we want to do. Never, ever, ever do that. Because that again will lead to a waste of time. The first 30 minutes will be you guys contemplating, wait, should we talk about this? Should we do this? Should we go over this? Should we do this? Now I kind of want to do this. Ah, that was too easy. Let's do this. It is not the way. All right. You want to have a set agenda. You want to say, hey guys, Friday, two hours dedicated to And then create the agenda so i'll give you an example if we did an hour session on friday the subject would be cardiology for example and say hey guys we're doing cardiology the first five minutes are going to be a check-in hey how is everybody's week you know be a human right it's okay to be a human we're not robots so check in how's everybody doing And then as soon as that's over, the next 30 minutes are EKGs and student number one is going to be teaching everything that they want to talk about when it comes to EKGs. Obviously, 30 minutes is not a lot of time. This is an example and you can take as much time as you need. The next 30 minutes is maybe for murmurs. So student number two is going to teach everything about murmurs and make it easier for us to understand. And then at the last five minutes, it's going to be the plan for the next meeting. So you don't even have to think what's the next group session going to look like. I recommend having maybe one to two group sessions a week that are no longer than two hours. The reason I say that is because after a while, distractions will happen and people start to get tired and they just don't want to talk about medicine anymore. And they want to talk about, hey, did you see what I saw on Instagram? Oh my gosh, yeah, that was so crazy. Can you even believe it? Like, no way, right? That's going to happen if you get a little bit too into the depths of uh, your time together. So I really recommend, you know, creating a time limit. Don't do it more than two times a week unless you have a really beast of a group and you're like, yo, we can meet every day and we knock things out and it's amazing. Love it. Do it. But if you're just starting off one to two times, no more than two hours per session to get these things done. All right. And what are we doing in group studying? We are applying the tutor effect. We are actually giving you the opportunity to not only become the master, right? You did that at home. You did your mastering of the skills, but now you are going and you are engaging in that material with trusted friends and individuals or peers. Right. The goal of the group is not to be judgmental. It is not to say this person's smarter than me or they're smarter than them or this person's dumb. There's no point in that. The goal is. I have become the master of murmurs. I want to teach you murmurs so that you can get this right on, exam, on the exam as well. I have become the master of EKGs. I want to teach you this so that you can master EKGs and get this right on the exam. This not only in the moment is going to make you really great at the subject, but long term, you're going to remember a lot more information when it comes to boards because at some point you've taught it. At some point, you really sat down with it and mastered it. All right. So when you become the teacher, you will become the best possible student. I truly believe that. I truly believe the reason that I was so lucky in my successes and I did very well in medical school was because I decided to become the teacher. I loved it. I learned so much from becoming a teacher because I could be in sessions with people and learn from them as well. By no means do I know everything at all. Constantly in my tutoring sessions, people are like, hey, I don't think that's right. I think it's this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're totally right. That is the way it is. I learn from my students every single day. But because I put myself in the role in the setting where I could teach others and they could teach me, I have become an incredible student, and it's helped me really be open-minded to learning in all settings, not just in medical school, but also in the hospital, also in just day-to-day life when you're walking around and talking to some stranger who, you know, has done these incredible things in their life and they teach you something. It's just amazing, right? Because the more you learn, the more that you can put that information onto somebody else. And so becoming the teacher, I have found in my journey, has been amazing. And the students that I've worked with, who have then gone on to be teachers themselves, have also done incredible in their career so far. And, you know, I I definitely will keep in touch as I go through residency, but I do plan, you know, to keep that teaching up as I go through because I want to continue to learn as well. And I know that that is the best way to set that up. All right. So in summary, what we talked about today was basically the tutor effect or also known as the protege effect. It is that we learn best when we teach. All right. There are so many studies that prove it. I only talked about a few of them. If you're interested, I would totally recommend it. You just type in the tutor effect, you go on PubMed or scholarly articles on Google, and a whole bunch of them pop up. I think it's fascinating. I want you to be the student to learn, and I want you to become the master to teach. Set your goal when you're studying to be able to learn the material so well that you can teach it. And then do group studying the right way so that you can apply the tutor effect. Limit the group size. Make sure everyone in the group has a subject to teach, and make sure there's an agenda for each meeting so you know exactly what it is you're going to cover as a group. And I believe with this in mind, applying the tutor effect into our medical school careers and our daily lives, this will make medicine a little bit easier. Now back to the question, a 10-year-old male presents to the emergency department with red urine. The patient's mother states they went to a family party party earlier in the week. Since then, she noticed her son becoming more lethargic. Patient states he was having abdominal pain and then noticed red urine. This has happened to him one time prior when he was an infant. Mother states during that time, he somehow got into her medications and took a dose of an antibiotic she was using for a UTI. The patient has two sisters. Neither of them had had an event like this prior. The patient appears to be in mild respiratory distress. Labs show a reduction in glutathione levels. What would you expect to see on a peripheral smear? A, target cells, B, bite cells, C, acanthocytes, D, burr cells, or E, schistocytes. This was a bit of a longer question stem, but hey, who doesn't like a little bit longer? But just some key concepts here. So this is, this is a kid. Right, and, and basically, they're saying that he's starting to urinate red. weird, so we might think like hemoglobinuria or myoglobinuria. He's at a family party. Maybe he caught something from somebody or maybe he ate something weird. I don't know, let's dive into it. He has abdominal pain, then he noticed the red urine. They said that this has happened before, okay. He took an antibiotic that his mom was taking for a UTI. Hmm, okay. And then he has two sisters and neither of them have had it before. Maybe they're trying to push me in the direction of like an X-link recessive type mutation. And there's also a reduction in glutathione levels, which is definitely pointing me in the direction of the disease. So the correct answer here is B, bite cells. And what are they talking about here? They are basically describing G6PD deficiency. And in G6BT deficiency, what we lose is the ability to reduce glutathione. Why do we lose that? Because we cannot use the glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase to create more NADPH. Without NADPH, we lose protection, protection from a lot of reactive oxygen species. Now, in this case, it's assumed that maybe the kid had fava beans at a party, party and then, you know, the UTI is uh, that the mom, maybe she was taking Bactrim so in this case, with G6PD deficiency, two of the big peripheral smear markers that we're looking for are Heinz bodies and bite cells. And and basically, with the Heinz bodies, what happens is the macrophage notices this denatured hemoglobin, which creates the Heinz body, and it comes around over and it bites the cell, and that's why we get a bite cell. So... That is the answer for this. Again, the answer is bite cells with G6PD deficiency. Thank you all for joining for this episode of the podcast. I really do appreciate it. My goal in life is to help as many as I can, and I know how much of a struggle it is to go through medical school and the pre-medical process, and I wish to be a guide for all of you and learn a lot from you as well. So thank you again for joining.